and no birds sing. Over increasingly large areas of the United States, spring now comes unheralded by the return of the birds. And the early mornings are strangely silent, where once they were filled with the beauty of a bird song. This sudden silencing of the song of birds, this obliteration of the color and beauty and interest they lend to our world, have come about swiftly, insidiously, and unnoticed by those whose communities are as yet unaffected. From the town of Hinsdale, Illinois, a housewife wrote in despair to one of the world's leading ornithologists, Robert Cushman Murphy, curator emeritus of birds at the American Museum of Natural History. Here in our village, the elm trees have been sprayed for several years, she wrote in 1958. When we moved here six years ago, there was a wealth of bird life. I put up a feeder and had a steady stream of cardinals, chickadees, downies, and nuthatches all winter. And the cardinals and the chickadees brought their young ones in the summer. After several years of DDT spray, the town is almost devoid of robins and starlings. Chickadees have not been on my shelf for two years, and this year, the cardinals are gone too. The nesting population in the neighborhood seems to consist of one dove pair and perhaps one catbird family. It's hard to explain to the children that the birds have been killed off when they have learned in school that a federal law protects the birds from killing or capture. Will they ever come back, they ask, and I do not have the answer. The elms are still dying, and so are the birds. Is anything being done? Can anything be done? Can I do anything? A year after the federal government had launched a massive spraying program against the fire ant, an Alabama woman wrote, Our place has been a veritable bird sanctuary for over half a century. Last July, we all remarked, There are more birds than ever. Then suddenly, in the second week of August, they all disappeared. I was accustomed to rising early to care for my favorite mare that had a young filly. There was not a sound of the song of a bird. It was eerie, terrifying. What was man doing to our perfect and beautiful world? Finally, five months later, a blue jay appeared and a wren. The autumn months to which we re she referred brought some other somber reports from the Deep South, where in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama, the field notes published quarterly by the National Audubon Society and the United States Fish and Wildlife Service noted the striking phenomenon of blank spots, weirdly empty of virtually all bird life. The field notes are a compilation, compilation of the reports of seasoned observers who have spent many years afield in their particular areas and have unparalleled knowledge of the normal bird life of the region. 
One such observer reported that in driving about southern Mississippi, that fall she saw no land birds at all for long distances. Another in Baton Rouge reported that the contents of her feeders had lain untouched for weeks on end, while fruiting shrubs in her yard that ordinarily would be stripped clean by that time still were laden with berries. Still another reported that his picture window, which often used to frame a scene splashed with the red of forty or fifty cardinals and crowded with other species, seldom permitted a view of as many as a bird or two at a time. Professor Maurice Brooks of the University of West Virginia, an authority on the birds of the Appalachian region, reported that the West Virginia bird population had undergone an incredible reduction. One story might serve as the tragic symbol of the fate of the birds, a fate that has already overtaken some species and threatens, and that threatens all. It is the story of the robin and the bird known to everyone. To millions of Americans, the season's first robin means that the grip of winter is broken. It's coming is an event reported in the newspapers and told eagerly at the breakfast table. And as the number of migrants grows and the first mist of green appear in the woodlands, thousands of people listen for the first dawn chorus of the robins throbbing in the early morning light. But now, all has changed. And not even the return of the birds may be taken for granted. The survival of the robin, and indeed of many other species as well, seems fatally linked with the American elm, a tree that is part of the history of thousands of towns from the Atlantic to the Rockies, gracing their streets and their villages, village squares, and college campuses with majestic archways of green. Now the elms are stricken with a disease that afflicts them throughout their range, a disease so serious that many experts believe all efforts to save the elms will in the end be futile. It would be tragic to lose the elms, but it would be doubly tragic if in vain efforts to save them we plunge vast segments of our bird populations into the night of extinction. Yet this is precisely what is threatened. The so-called Dutch elm disease entered the United States from Europe about 1930 in elm burl logs imported for the veneer industry. It is a fungus disease. The organism invades the water-conducting vessels of the tree, spreads by spores carried by the flow of sap, and by its poisonous secretions as well, as by the mechanical clogging causes the branches to wilt and the tree to die. The disease is spread from diseased to healthy trees by elp, elm bark beetles. The galleries which the insects have tunneled out under the bark of dead trees become contaminated with spores of the invading fungus, and the spores adhere to the insect body and are carried wherever the beetle flies. Efforts to control the fungus disease of the elms have been directly largely toward control of the carrier insect. In community after community, especially throughout the strongholds of the American elm, the Midwest and New England intensive spraying has become a routine procedure. What this spraying could mean to bird life, and especially to the robin, 
was first made clear by the work of two ornithologists at Michigan State University, Professor George Wallace and one of his graduate students, John Maynard. When John Maynard began work for the doctorate for the doctorate in 1954, he chose a research project that had to do with robin populations. This was quite by chance, for at the time, no one suspected that the robins were in danger. But even as he undertook the work, events occurred that were to change his character and indeed to deprive him of his material. Spraying for Dutch elm disease became in a small way on the universe in a small way on the university campus in 1954. The following year, the city of East Lansing, where the university is located, mosquito control was also underway. The rain of chemicals increased to a downpour. During 1954, the year of the first light spraying, all seemed well. The following spring, the migrating robins began to return to the campus as usual. Like the bluebells in Tomlinson's haunting essay, The Lost Wood, they were expecting no evil as they pre-reoccupied their familiar territories. But soon, it became evident that something was wrong. Dead and dying robins began to appear in the campus. Few birds were seen in their normal foraging activities or assembling in their usual roosts. Few nests were built. Few young appeared. The pattern was repeated with monotonous regularity in succeeding springs. The sprayed area had become a lethal trap in which each wave of migrating robins would be eliminated in about a week. The new arrivals would come in only to add to the numbers of doomed birds seen on the campus in the agonized tremors that precede death. The campus is serving as a graveyard for most of the robins that attempt to take up residence in the spring, said Dr. Wallace. But why? At first, he suspected some disease of the nervous system. But soon it became evident that in spite of the assurances of the insecticide people that their sprays were in quote, harmless to birds, the robins were really dying of insecticidal poisoning. They exhibited the well-known symptoms of loss of balance, followed by tremors, convulsions, and death. Several facts suggested that the robins were being poisoned not so much by direct contact with the insecticides as indirectly by eating earthworms. Campus earthworms have been fed inadvertently to crayfish in a research project, and all the crayfish had promptly died. A snake kept in a laboratory cage had gone into violent tremors after being fed such worms. And earthworms are the principal food of robins in the spring. A key piece in the jigsaw puzzle of the doomed robins was soon to be supplied by Dr. Roy Barker of Illinois Natural History Survey at Urbana. Dr. Barker's work published in 1958 traced the intricate cycle of events in which the robin's fate is linked to the elm trees by the way of the earthworms. The trees are sprayed in the spring, usually at the rate of 2 to 5 pounds of DDT 
per 50-foot tree, which may be the equivalent of as much as 23 pounds per acre where elms are numerous, and often again in July at about half this concentration. Powerful sprayers direct a stream of poison to all parts of the tallest trees, killing directly not only the target organism, the bark beetle, but other insects, including pollinating species and predatory spiders and beetles. The poison forms a tenacious film over the leaves and bark. Rains do not wash it away. In the autumn, the leaves fall to the ground, accumulate in sodden layers, and begin the slow process of becoming one with the soil. In this, they are aided by the toil of the earthworms, who feed in the leaf litter, for elm leaves are among their favorite foods. In feeding on the leaves, the worms also swallow the insecticide, accumulating and concentrating it in their bodies. Dr. Barker found deposits of DDT throughout the digestive tracts of the worms, their blood vessels, nerves, and body wall. Undoubtedly, some of the earthworms themselves succumb, but others survive to become biological magnifiers of the poison. In the spring, the robins return to, re to provide another link in the cycle. As few as 11 large earthworms can transfer a lethal dose of DDT to a robin, and 11 worms form a small part of the day's rations to a bird that eats 10 to 12 earthworms in as many minutes. Not all robins receive a lethal dose, but another consequence may lead to the extinction of their kind as surely as fatal poisoning. The shadow of sterility lies over all the bird studies and indeed lengthens to include all living things within its potential range. There are now only two or three dozen robins to, to be found each spring on the entire 185-acre campus of Michigan State University, compared with a conservatively estimated 370 adults in this area before spraying. In 1954, every robin nest under observation by Mariner produced young. Toward the end of June in 1957, when at least 370 young birds, the normal replacement of the adult population, would have been foraging over the campus in the years before spraying began, Mariner could find only one young robin. A year later, Dr. Wallace was to report, at no time during the spring or summer of 1958 did I see a fledgling, a fledgling robin anywhere on the campus, and so far I have failed to find anyone else who has seen one there. Part of this failure to produce young is due, of course, to the fact that one or more of, pair of, pair of a pair of robins dies before the nesting cycle is completed. But Wallace has significant records which point to something more sinister, the actual destruction of the bird's capacity to reproduce. He has, for example, records of robins and other birds building nests but laying no eggs, and others laying eggs and incubating, incubating them but not hatching them. We have one record of a robin that sat on its egg faithfully for 21 days, and they did not hatch. 
The normal incubation period is 13 days. Our analysis are showing high concentrations of DDT in the testes and ovaries of the breeding birds, he told a congressional committee in 1960. Ten males had amounts ranging from 30 to 109 parts per million in the testes, and two females had 151 and 211 parts per million, respectively, in the egg follicles in the ovaries. Soon studies in other areas began to develop findings equally dismal. We'll end it here so you can continue this chapter. I'll go ahead and put the text. I found the text for you so you can continue reading if you'd like. I am your show host, Yvette, and this is Aging Well Talk Radio. This chapter was quite quite disturbing, and um, I know many of you, if not all of you, are very concerned with things that are happening now, decades later, in our world. And reading Silent Spring reminds us on how important it is for us to be good stewards of our planet. We're responsible for the living creatures that we share this planet with. So I will go ahead and put this text for you. This is the bookshelf. We are very informal here. Uh, My efforts is to bring you books that I enjoy reading, but also to ignite you into action. If you've been away from reading, to bring reading back into your life and have you start your very own bookshelf. Welcome. uh, Thank you very much again, ladies and gentlemen. I am your show host, Yvette, and I welcome you here anytime you'd like. Thank you very much. Until we meet again, bye for now.